morning, everyone. Um, recall a time when you were young. You're on the playground, and uh, there's that kid, there's that one kid, that one kid that you just sort of roll your eyes at. You roll your eyes at him because uh, he's your friend, but he's just no fun to be around, okay? He's that kid that uh, loves to come up with new games, you know him, okay? Uh, and, and he has all of these great ideas for all these different games you can play, but not only that, he also is the one that makes up the rules for those games, and appoints himself as the referee and the arbiter for those rules as well for that game. And so um, every two seconds, he's getting on to somebody because they're just not playing the game right. You know that kid. He's in your face. He's nitpicky. He's intolerable. Well, some things don't change. Left unchecked, those intolerable kids become even more intolerable adults. That's a meme about being holier than thou. Do you get the joke? Thank you. <laughs> you know, if they were sure that they were right before, they're certain of it now. They walk around with an air of superiority around them. They become smug. They become self-assured that they know what's what and certain that they're a better person than you are. And they'll let you know about it too. I know someone like that, okay? This person actually lives in my house, eats my food, wears my clothes even, yeah, it's me. I love being right. I mean, who doesn't? I love being right, and I like for things to be done a certain way, the right way. But it's not just that. I also want other people to do things that way. Why? Because, again, it's the right way. That's, that's me. I was that kid, and, and oftentimes I find myself to be that adult. Okay? We're in the middle of our Crosswalk Sermon Series. And we've been looking in this series about what the disciples of Christ are called to sacrifice, take to the cross, put on the cross, things that we are to sacrifice so we can experience the joy that comes on the other side of the cross. See, Chris talked to us, for example, about the fact that we should sacrifice our fear so we can experience a greater faith. Bill talked to us about sacrificing worldly greatness for spiritual greatness. Well, for the next several minutes, I want to talk to us this morning about sacrificing self-righteousness for the joy of true righteousness. Self-righteousness is when we judge ourselves to be morally superior, okay, morally good by our own standard, okay? Uh, it comes from a self-assessment of ourselves where we highlight and we emphasize the good things that we do, our good actions, and we minimize or rationalize all of the bad ones. And so we get a very rosy picture of ourselves. Okay? It, uh, it, it, it skews our perspective, but, but the self-righteousness does a lot for us. It helps us feel good about ourselves, doesn't it? It helps us get this feeling of nobility, of being noble, of being virtuous. I mean, who doesn't want to feel that? I do. But it's not just that it helps us feel like we're good people. It makes us think that we are better people, better than we really are. It's not just that you're satisfied with yourself. It's that you're dissatisfied with everyone else around you. No one else is as good as you are. 
And herein lies the two-pronged danger of self-righteousness. There are two facets of self-righteousness, two sides to it, where on the one hand, it distorts the way you see yourself. And then on the other hand, it, it negatively affects the way you see other people. A self-righteous person is confident that they are a good person, but he makes that judgment, she makes that judgment, not in light of what Scripture, of what God says about him, not in light of what God says about her, but rather considering his or her own flawed perception. That's how we come up with that assessment. Now, I don't know why we resort to self-righteousness. Uh, I don't always understand why I resort to it, I don't understand its allure all the time, but I do know that humans have been this way for all of history. Many of us know well the story of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the garden, booted out because of their disobedience. Yeah, we're very familiar with that story. But let's examine for a moment what was at the heart of their disobedience, okay? So if you will, accompany me in Genesis chapter 3. I'm going to be reading in verses 4 through 6. Now, you know what came before. God has created this beautiful world, and he's given it as a stewardship to the man and woman, and he tells them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, make the rest of the earth look like the Garden of Eden, go have at it, enjoy, eat, eat of all the trees that you want in here, except there's this one tree, leave it alone, okay? Don't touch it, don't eat the fruit, you'll die. That's where we enter the story. Verse 4 of chapter 3, look what it says. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Did you catch that? We are given as Eve's reasoning for disobeying God the fact that she saw nothing wrong with eating the fruit. She's thinking, God is telling me something that doesn't align with my view and experience of the world. He's telling me that this fruit is bad for me, but I'm pretty sure that he's just trying to keep something good from me. So rather than trusting God about the fruit, she trusts her own judgment. That is textbook self-walk way of thinking. That is textbook self-walk behavior. It is so insidious, and, and look at the power that it exerts over Eve and even over Adam. I mean, self-walk has the power to push us over the line on something that God has clearly said no to. And Bill brought this up, and he made this comment in preaching to him this past week that, that, you know, when God made this prohibition, do not eat of the fruit, it was likely more than once. Scripture says that the Lord walked with them in the cool of the day, sort of suggests this idea that perhaps it was an ongoing conversation. We don't know that for sure, but it's conceivable. And so God has been talking to them about the fact that they should stay away, and yet the self-walk way of thinking 
is so insidious, it's so powerful that it can push us over the line on something that he's been so clear about. Because of Adam and Eve's self-walk, they brought sin into the world and they plunged the world into the filth that followed. Fast forward a little bit, okay? And we arrive on scene in the promised land. Remember the story of how the Israelites were delivered out of Egypt and uh, under Moses' leadership, they are getting, they, they've been wandering in the desert for 40 years, right? But, they, but they're getting ready to take possession of the promised land, but not before They don't enter before they're reminded to heed God's words and to live in obedience to him if they want to be be blessed by him in this new land that he was giving to them. You can find the story in Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30. As they're getting ready to enter and take possession of Canaan after 40 years of wandering, Moses warns them not to stray from God's commands if they wish to be successful, if they wish to be prosperous in the land of their inheritance. But what we see is this, that once Joshua and Caleb, the ones who actually brought them in, once they died, once that generation of leaders died off, Israelite society went off the rails. What we find in the book of Judges is is a society that has given itself over to the worship of pagan gods and goddesses. They, they build uh, altars to Baal, and they build Asherah poles. They sacrifice their children to Moloch, and they're abusing and, 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 and taking advantage of one another. This is how the writer of Judges sums up the situation in Israel at the time. In Judges 21-25, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did, get this, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. See, as soon as the opportunity arose, the Israelites threw off what they determined were the shackles of God's law, of His commands. They felt that they were, uh, uh, His commandments were keeping them from experiencing joy. They felt, like Eve did, that God was keeping good things from them by imposing all these commandments on them. They figured that they knew better, and so they just wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. They lived their lives how they saw fit. See, their standard of morality became, well, if it serves me, it's good. And if it doesn't, it's probably not. Well, how did that turn out for them? What we find in the book of Judges is Israelite society is in complete disarray. Today, the cool kids would say it was a dumpster fire, okay? It was. They were constantly harassed by their neighbors, Their cities became lawless. Their officials became corrupt. The people became immoral. And collectively, they became weak as a nation. And as we see in history, Israel as a sovereign nation comes to an end when they are raided and taken captive by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. That was the legacy of their self-walk way of thinking. They knew what God commanded, but just like Eve, in their self-walk thinking, because they saw nothing wrong with their lives, their self-righteousness became their self-destruction. Whether with Eve or with the ancient Israelites, I want you to see this, that there is no joy whatsoever 
in self-righteousness. There is no joy. It is instead a heavy burden that we bear. Think about it. When you're self-righteous, righteous in your own eyes, one of two things can happen. You either become anxious because you're, you're constantly seeing that you're never going to measure up to the standard, right? So you become anxious. You lose your peace. You can't rest. Or on the other hand, you become arrogant because you think that you do measure up and that no one else does. There's no joy in living that way. You're either anxious or you become arrogant. One way or another, you're never at peace, either with God, yourself, or with other people. It is a burden that we bear. So let me tell you now about the joy of true righteousness. Fast forward a little bit more from the time of the judges. And we arrive in Jerusalem in Jesus' time. He's surrounded by his followers, and he tells them a parable about two men that went up to the temple to excuse me, to pray. A Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, the people saw the Pharisees as the most upstanding citizens in society, okay? Uh, they were looked up to as being the ones who had it all together. So in their mind, they're going, yeah, if you want to be like someone, be like these guys. Now, Jesus didn't feel that way, and we'll see why in a second. And the tax collector, well, probably wouldn't have made the top 100 list of most upstanding citizens. And so Jesus tells them this parable about these two that go up to the temple to pray. You can find this in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 40, 14. This is how the story goes. Follow along with me. He also told them this parable. He, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Do you see that? Do you see that two-pronged danger of self-righteousness? You trust in yourself that you're righteous, and you look down on others. Verse 10, he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector, I fast twice a week, and I give a tithe of everything that I have. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but rather beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Did you see what Jesus did? Rather than affirming that the Pharisee was the righteous one, Jesus asserted that the tax collector was the one who was right in the eyes of God. And his reasoning was simple. The tax collector recognized. The tax collector recognized that true righteousness was not within him. That's it. <laughs> he was painfully aware of the fact that he was a sinner. The Pharisee, on the other hand, wasn't. So the tax collector, because of his humility, though he was broken by the knowledge of his sin, he experienced the joy of being justified by God, being called righteous by God. That is true righteousness, is when God calls you righteous. The tax collector went home justified that day. See, crosswalk thinking means that you and I give up. We give up measuring ourselves against our own moral standard. 
and demanding that everyone else do the same, be measured by that standard. And when we do that, we too are broken by the knowledge of our sin, of course, but we can then be justified by God. We can then be called righteous by God. That's true righteousness. See, we can't receive the righteousness of God if we are content with our own pathetic version of it. You can have one or the other, not both. But we, so when we give up our self-righteousness, what a joy we can take hold of. I mean, imagine how those two men went home that day. The Pharisee probably with his chest puffed, you know, continuing with his, you know, sense of superiority over the tax collector and maybe over others, goes home thinking, I'm just a good guy. Becomes more intolerable by the day, all the while not actually being righteous. And if he doesn't repent, he's going to be eternally condemned. He's actually living a burdensome life. But the tax collector walks away with a load lifted off his shoulders because he gave up his burdens. He gave up the burden of being self-righteous, and in turn, he found peace, and he found rest. That's the joy of true righteousness. What a far cry from the anxiety and the arrogance of self-righteousness, finding peace and rest in God's presence. That's the joy of true righteousness. Paul describes his crosswalk in this way in Philippians chapter 3, right? He makes a list of all the things in which he could boast. But he says this, right before this passage here, he says, I count all of those things, anything that I could put my confidence in, I count all of that as loss. Indeed, I count everything as, as loss for the sake of Christ. The good things that I've done, nothing. The bad things that I've done, nothing. All I want is I want to be found in Christ. I want to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, or that comes from any other standard to which we hold ourselves that we've created for ourselves. But I want the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what I want. I love being right. And often I compare myself against others because I like to know where I stand. But also know that I'm probably not alone in that. As humans, even as Christians, we have this desire to, 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 to know that we're right. <laughs> we want to be right in, in, in our own eyes. But it, that is a heavy, heavy burden. It's a bad way to live. Today, I want to encourage us, I want to challenge us to lay aside that burden. You don't have to carry that burden. I want you to embrace the joy of the true righteousness of God. Don't be anxious about whether you measure up. Be confident that in Jesus, because of what he's done for you, you do. Don't be arrogant, thinking that you're better than everyone else. Be joyful that God has accepted you, even though you aren't. Embrace the true righteousness of God, and this is how you do that. 
you're thinking, well, how exactly do I set aside that burden? How exactly do I embrace this crosswalk way of dealing with righteousness? You must choose. It is a choice. See, you must choose how you deal with what God tells you. Think about Eve for a moment. Are you going to ignore what God tells you like she did? Or are you going to obey him? You have to choose. You must choose how you judge what is good. Are you going to decide for yourself, set your own standards, live by what you think is right and good for you like the ancient Israelites did? Or are you going to submit to God's standard of righteousness? You must choose how you judge and view other people. Are you going to hold them to your flawed standard? Compare them against yourself? Or are you going to see them as your fellow cross-walkers? Choose today to embrace and walk in the righteousness of God. You can experience true righteousness today when you put your faith in Jesus' redeeming work on the cross, when you're baptized into his death, when you're raised to live a new life with a new righteousness that is not of your own. The righteousness of God, the, the moment when he justifies you, when he calls you righteous. You can set aside all of those burdens and embrace the joy that comes from knowing that you have peace and rest with God because of his true righteousness that he's giving to you as a gift. So if this morning you want to take that decision, you want to take that step of being justified by God and not by anyone else, or if this church can help you in any other way this morning, come, come forward and let us know as we stand and sing.